Welcome to Life Together, a podcast for Gresham Bible Church, where we exist to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. On this episode, Josh and I have a discussion with Nick Stumbo, and we hear about Nick's story and ministry. Specifically, we discuss sexual brokenness and paths toward healing. I trust you'll find this conversation honest and helpful. Welcome to Life Together. We have a very special guest on today's podcast, Nick Stumbo. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, excellent. We'll first have some questions for Christian Bible Church to get to know you more, and then we want to talk through kind of your day job and why you do what you do at Pure Desire Ministries and hope that that really uh, helps Christian Bible Church and sparks some meaningful um, conversations within our church. So first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, what should we know about you? Where'd you grow up? Stuff like that. All right. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's family in Wyoming and then Montana, graduated from Helena, Montana, uh, went to Bible college in uh, Minnesota, Crown College, where I met my wife, uh, Michelle, who was from the Tacoma area. She had followed some friends out there. We met, dated three years of college, kind of the maybe typical Christian college dating marriage story, got married end of our senior year, worked at the school for a year. And then I became a pastor at uh, a Christian and Missionary Alliance church in Kelso, Washington, Uh, started as the associate. A couple years into that, uh, was asked to become the lead pastor. And against my better judgment, God led us into that. (laughs) I thought I was too young and not ready, but became a senior pastor. My title was literally senior pastor at 26. Uh, and we had a great 12 year run there as the lead pastor where we had all of our kids and had just a great experience as that church grew. And, and then five and a half years ago, moved down to Gresham to become the, uh, executive director at Pure Desire Ministries. So that's kind of the career path. Um, we have four kids, two girls, Alyssa and Maddie, who are 17 and 14. So teenage daughters, and then a 13 year old son, Carter and a 10 year old son, Luke, So I tell people we had two and two and then we were through because that was all we could handle. Uh, So life is very full and busy right now. They're all in different sports and activities. Um, So I'm a huge sports fan, Minnesota Twins, grew up in the Kirby Puckett, Kent Herbeck era, going to the Metrodome on summer vacations. Kind of was like, as a kid from a small town in Wyoming, the Metrodome was like the highlight of my growing up years that 50,000 people could actually fit into this (laughs) dome stadium. There's 50,000 uh, people in the world even. Yeah, yeah. it felt yeah, right. it felt unusual. I mean, it was like yeah. 20 times the size of the city I was, the, the small town I was from. And they were packing it out in those days. And when they would announce Kirby Puckett and the place would go crazy, like there'd be chills down my spine. So um, yeah, big baseball fan, uh, Seattle Seahawks, Minnesota Vikings, kind of all things sports. Um, Got into running after college because it was hard to organize, you know, basketball and football teams. Grew up playing those sports and have run numerous marathons, half marathons, hood to coast. So I'm currently a pretty active runner. Love to drink coffee, micro brews. I don't know. Can I say that on the podcast? Yes. Uh, big fan <laughs> of micro brews. Um, yeah, that's kind that's of a, a that's summary a, of my life. That's a lot of good information right oh, there. Yeah. yeah. Have you found your coffee consumption? going up with three teenagers in your house or is there a relationship there? I have like probably more anxiety. I just stay awake naturally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be more careful not to drink coffee late in the day or I don't sleep at night. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily coffee drink. There's other kinds of drinking that have maybe increased with teenage daughters, but yeah. that's another conversation for maybe a counseling session. Understood. Understood. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. How many years were you at Kelso as a pastor again? So we lived there all together, 14 and a half and 12 of those. I was the pastor, the the lead pastor. I've always, I agree with what you said, but I always find that so odd when you're so young and you get the title senior pastor, it just feels like you're wearing your parents' clothes as a kid or something. It just feels so strange. Well, and Mm -hmm. when I started the, my board of elders, they were all twice my age or more. Oh yeah. So it was like, 
you know, a room of my dad's friends and me yeah. <laughs> were the church leadership. And, and so I immediately hired a youth pastor who was younger than I was. So he was the young guy and it immediately made me look older. Oh, uh, that's a good strategy. I, I don't like know that. how well that worked. Oh yeah. No. And I always bring this up in different contexts, but, um, it's worth saying again, but Nick grew up at my high school, uh, you're our rivals yeah, in high school. Yeah, cross-town rivals. Wow, it's just so look weird. at this right now. still yeah, strikes me every time. That we were both from Helena, both pastor kids. Yeah. Our dads would pray together weekly for the city. So it's kind of, it's just kind of cool. And yeah, yeah. this is so cool. Good yeah. little. So who was the better sports team then? Is there a, is this a, like a real oh, rivalry man, or is there Helena more? High. Okay. For well, sure. It was kind of a sport thing. Like Helena High was the basketball school right. uh -huh. and the more preppy school in our opinion. Uh -huh. And Capitol High <laughs> oh, was the more sure. rugged the cowboy yeah. school and we were the football school. Uh, so okay. All right. almost, yeah. at least when I was in school and probably in your era too, like we won, I think, every football game and they won mm -hmm. every basketball game. Oh, yeah. wow, interesting. <laughs> That's right. okay. So that yeah. was kind of the chant, like at the opposite sport, like our fans would chant the football score at the basketball game. Yeah. Because if Helena <laughs> High was trying to rub it in that, hey, we're beating you, we're like, well, you remember a couple months ago? <laughs> so so there, was, there was always that back and forth. Oh, yeah. It's a big, it's, it's a big deal. It's so, great that you yeah. both have that background and you can have a smile on your face right now. Oh, yeah. well, to so, I'm so far removed now. I mean, you know. It was getting to be a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, how about I have to ask one more question. You're a huge sports fan, so I'm really looking forward to your answer on this. So if you had your intro song, Nick, whatever sport you want to pick, what would be your walk up music, your intro song for Nick Stumbo? Wow, that's that's a good question. Uh I don't know if I've ever thought about that. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I go I go back to like mid nineties high school football yes. warm up music, you know, Eye of the Tiger. Oh man. Um, smells like Teen Spirit or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Welcome to the jungle. Uh, I'm trying to think what other songs we had. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about that. That's a, okay. that's a good question. Okay. All right. Well, feel free at any other time to let me know as you contemplate that important Can maybe question. Maybe add this to the episode. Oh, lead for in sure. My walk yes, up song. that's exactly where I'm Being coming from. Being from you probably like dun, Ace dun, of Base dun. or something. Yeah, I don't know. Ace of Base. Ace of Base. Yes. Uh, something like that. All right. Um, well, we wanted to hear, uh, you know, your testimony more. So what Josh was asking about in terms of, you know, your experience um, as a pastor and then how that has led you to what you do now. So maybe we'll just kind of start. I thought a good maybe entry point would be if you don't mind just sharing your brief testimony with us and let's just kind of go down that path from there. So uh, how'd you meet Jesus? Yeah. Uh, so as I said, grew up in a pastor's family. And so going to church was just kind of what you did. And mm -hmm. um, I think I probably first accepted Christ at the typical uh, backyard Bible club, five years old, you know, at the end, they're like, well, if anyone wants to uh, pray to accept Jesus, go to this part of the yard. And I, I did that all five days because I don't think anyone explained that like once was was good. I, I wanted to make sure because yeah. I knew all my family were Christians. And what I understood was that if you weren't a Christian, you went to hell and that didn't sound mm -hmm. good. And so I wanted to, you know, make sure I was uh, okay there. Uh, really had a very positive experience growing up in the church. You know, like summer camp was a highlight of my growing up years and youth group was great. And I did like Bible quizzing and all the youth conferences. And, you know, I, I joke that I had a mini rebellion my senior year of high school where I went to one rated R movie and felt horrible about it. And, uh, but I was pretty much, you know, really embraced faith and Probably uh, when I think of like owning faith for myself at 13 years old at summer camp, mm -hmm. really was the first time I feel like I heard a speaker challenge us about did we know Jesus or did we just believe because our parents did and and really embrace then a personal relationship of knowing Christ and having you know my own time of prayer and journaling and devotions and and developing some of those spiritual rhythms. Um, definitely had later in high school, more what I would call like identity crisis of I'm, am I mm -hmm. living for myself or living for the Lord? And, um, I think at the end of kind of that season of searching is where I felt called into ministry at mm -hmm. probably like 17 years old and kind of gave up some ideas of, you know, what were the jobs I could get where I could just make the most money and have the biggest reputation and instead saying, okay, God, what, what do you want me to do? And mm -hmm. so that was the heading to Bible college after that and becoming a pastor and, um, yeah, that, that'd be the short version of kind of the faith journey. Yeah. Okay. So then you become a pastor, associate, and then a lead pastor. Maybe kind of walk that back for us. Bring us into that timeline and experience, connecting the dots between you did that for a season. Now you're at Pure Desire. How'd you get from one place to the other and why? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, pastoral ministry was, I was kind of settling because when I really felt called to ministry, it's like, okay, God, what's the greatest thing I can do for you? And mm-hmm. that was to be a missionary. And so I actually went to school, started on a missions track and just along the way kind of felt God closing doors and redirecting. And so, you know, then the next most noble thing you can do for the Lord is plant a church uh, and was pursuing that. And that's actually why we landed in Kelso was we were going to be the church planners out of um, the, the church that really had a vision for that. And as we were getting close to that kind of time frame, the senior pastor who had brought us in for that, uh, he left. And so mm-hmm. it kind of halted those plans and so then became the pastor. And uh, yeah, th- then leading into pure desire, you know, that's definitely not the kind of career anyone's dreaming about when they're shooting hoops in the backyard of like, someday I'm going to grow up and run a sex addiction ministry and <laughs> <laughs> help people with sexual brokenness. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I joke that pretty much anyone in that ministry is probably there because of it's their story. And mm-hmm. it's very, very true as I've gotten to meet a lot of people doing similar things. Um, so I, I had what I describe as a fairly typical young Christian guy's struggle with pornography and growing up in a home where I knew it wasn't right or acceptable. And I would have from the beginning thought of it as sinful, but also grew up in a home that never talked about it. And it didn't feel safe to talk about without, in my opinion, probably getting in a lot of trouble. And so developed this secretive struggle that was not, not ever something I was living a double life of hiding, but just once in a while struggling again and then, you know, deleting the browser history or throwing away the magazine or however I had accessed it and and just think, okay, that was the last time. And that yeah. was the last time. And, um, you know, said that to myself basically for 15 years that every time mm-hmm. was going to be the last time. And um, just believed, I'd, I'd heard enough married guys talk that I knew marriage wasn't a magical cure. I knew that wasn't going to fix me, but I, I think I just believed I was going to mature my way out of it, that it would just kind of yeah. fall off because it was the the one area of my life, my struggle with pornography that I felt like I just can't get it together here. I mean, everywhere yeah. else I felt like I was making good decisions in dating and relationships and career and money. And like, this will just, it'll get figured out eventually. But I was 10 years into ministry. So being the senior pastor, 10 years into marriage, uh, and it was still an on again, off again mm-hmm. struggle. Uh, so at, at that point, one of the you might think of it as a positives is that I'd really embraced the idea of the way we dealt with besetting sin, as I would have called it was to confess. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I'd become a serial confessor that when I would struggle, I would find the appropriate person to confess to. And, and when I became a senior pastor in kind of the isolation of that role, where it didn't really feel safe to talk to others, the only person that I felt I could safely confess to was my wife, Mm -hmm. uh, because she'd known about the struggle. I'd been honest in our engagement kind of time frame. I felt like it wasn't fair to get married and then bring out skeletons in the closet. Yeah, so I amen. kind of opened that door and, you know, she of course had said, well, you know, can you just promise that you won't do it anymore? And I remember when we were engaged saying to her that I want to make that promise to you, but I, I feel like I've made that promise to myself and others many times. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to try really hard and I'll do my best. Um, but I don't know if I can promise you that. So mm-hmm. even as a you know 22 year old, I was acknowledging a struggle or a habit that I already knew was somehow beyond my ability to stop and yet would never have thought of it that way. Just thought, I'm, I'm just a day away from totally defeating this thing. And um, anyway, because of that, confessing to her, it was creating tremendous pain for her uh, that I had been pretty blind to uh, because I felt like if she just understood it, she wouldn't be so mad because it's not about her. It's been in my life long before I knew her and I'm, I'm dealing with it. And this was the last time. And mm-hmm. Well, after 10 years of her hearing that it was the last time, as you might imagine, she was skeptical that it would ever be the last time. And she was really at an emotional point done in the marriage, starting to use words like separation and divorce. And so I I knew it was getting serious um, and had had a relapse, you know, in 2010 and had what I call built the wall around me. Like, okay, I'm never going to use this again. I'll never use the internet alone. I'll never watch TV alone. Just all these guardrails and boundaries and, and was having a good period uh, time there where there had been no issues, but I knew that nothing on the inside had changed. Mm. It was just all this wall around me. And I was living in this fear or what we would call white knuckling it, this fear that I was just 
the wrong moment away from being in the wrong mood at the wrong time with the wrong opportunity. And I would go back to it. And it, it scared me because I really believed if I did, I could lose my marriage yeah. uh, because of how hurt she was and she, just feeling like I can't be around this pain you're causing me. And it was actually in the middle of that season where we were introduced to Pure Desire Ministries, uh, Dr. Ted Roberts came and actually spoke at our conference for pastors that was here in Portland. Uh, our district leadership got up and talked about this incredible plan to help pastors who are struggling and not lose their jobs, mm -hmm. which even now is not that common. And 12 years ago, like pretty much unheard of that in so many ministry circles, this is like the one thing, if if you're caught with this, it's go find a new job. And so of course, mm -hmm. no one no one confesses or brings it up because you don't want to lose your job. and. So they're, they're doing this great offer of like, boy, come and be changed and we'll help you. And um, I should have been running down the aisle, like sign me up. But I was actually so stuck in denial and believing that, well, pff, last time was the last time. I've had two good months. I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. That I was ready to pass up the offer. Uh, but fortunately, I, well, I should say providentially, uh, Michelle was at that conference with me. Um, and I, this part always makes me emotional, but what I was hearing as a good offer for other pastors, mm -hmm. uh, my wife was hearing as a, an answer to 10 years of prayer, mm -hmm. knowing that there had to be help out there. There had to be freedom. There had to be something. And I think she really believed me when I said, I want to be mm -hmm. free. She really believed that I, I wanted to be a good husband in this area, but just didn't know how, like no one could show us a way. And here was a ministry saying, we can show you the way we can help you. And so she was like, you know, ready to jump up and mm -hmm. down. And because of that, as you might expect, we ended up going through Pure Desires program for pastors. Um, we did a year of being in groups and a year of counseling, and it was really transformational because what was so unique was it wasn't just, um, and I don't mean just in a dismissive way, but in terms of most recovery programs that I was aware of at that time was basically pray these prayers, read more scripture, have more discipline. It was a lot of effort to just try harder. Yeah. But what Pure Desire introduced to us was helping understand at a deeper level why I was doing the things, you know, Romans chapter seven, why am I doing what I don't want to do? What's driving these behaviors and how did it connect to faulty ideals of how I viewed myself, yeah. um, ways I was dealing with unwanted emotion in my life or wounds or pain. It just, it had really become a way of escape. And I had never connected the dots to that. Um, and the other side too, that Pure Desire brought to light was how um, the brain is literally impacted by your struggles with pornography. And so if you simply try to not do a behavior, but don't address the patterns in your brain, you're likely not going to be successful because the brain knows the way back down this road. And there's, yeah. there's some literal brain change that has to take place. And so Pure Desire brought all of that together into a very biblical approach of healing that incorporated a lot of these ideas and and led to freedom. And uh, so you're wondering maybe how this leads to me being the director of Pure Desire. At the end of that year, uh, Dr. Ted Roberts said, okay, Nick, you're ready. And I'm like, all right, ready for what? <laughs> he said, you are ready to share this story with your church. And I said, no, I'm not. I don't think I will ever be ready for that. Like I was just gonna deal with this privately, like get better, move on, never talk about it again. But he really asked me a compelling question. He said, you know, Nick, if, if you're struggling and having had all the advantages you had of a Christian home and a good upbringing, he said, do you think there are men in your church who also struggle? And I'm like, well, yeah, obviously. Wow. And, and just planted in me the idea that if I'd be willing to use my story, it would lead to a lot of other people being able to engage in their story. And so at the end of a sermon actually that I gave on Romans 7, uh, I did a public disclosure in our church and talked about my 15 year addiction to pornography. Uh, you could have heard a pin drop in that room, uh, but just said, I, I believe that God wants to use my story to become our story. And as part of that sermon of asking for their forgiveness for how I'd failed, I also asked for their help to start the ministry for men and women who had similar struggles in their own life. And really overnight, we launched Pure Desire Groups because I was leading a group for men and my wife was leading a group for women. And what we watched over the next five years was how this became really the most transformational discipleship approach we had as a church because I found that when we helped people, and I, it was my own story too, that when we helped people with their sexual brokenness and delivered, saw them get delivered through Christ from shame and, and the behavior, um, it, it created disciples. It created mm. people that were able to engage in a whole new level. And it really transformed our church. Uh, because of that, I wrote a book called Setting Us Free that 
kind of tells our story. And then I would speak on occasion at Pure Desire conferences because they'd want to hear what was happening and we'd tell our story. And then in uh, 2015, Dr. Ted Roberts was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, he was in his early 70s at the time, and they realized they needed to fast forward a succession plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and they felt like that we were the answer to that, that I was the the person God was leading into it. And so that was a kind of a long circuitous route to become the executive director of a sexual integrity ministry that now, you know, we get to have the privilege of helping thousands of people find wow. hope, healing, and freedom through Jesus Christ over sexual brokenness. And mm -hmm. really ultimately to be a healing resource for churches, because um, that's what we're passionate about as a ministry is helping churches become that safe place so that when men or women are ready to face their sexual brokenness, they don't have to look outside the church. Because mm -hmm. for so many, that's the only option. It's like go somewhere else for counseling, go somewhere else to get help. And when you're better, you know, come back and tell us. But we really believe uh, that long-term, this issue won't change much in our society and even Christian society until the local church is the safe place. And so mm -hmm. that's that's our aim is to try to equip groups to run sustainably in the local church without needing to have you know a pastor leading every group because that yeah. is really limiting. So uh, that's, that's kind of my day job now in a nutshell is using Man. my story and what we do to help uh, lead other churches down a healing pathway. Yeah. I so appreciate your transparency, sharing your story, and then also your heart for the local church in this and knowing there's so much sexual brokenness, of course, around yeah. us in our culture, but inside of all of us and how the church can help in that way. So um, I don't want to make this too much like a academic defining our terms conversation, but I think it's helpful because there can often be misconceptions, definitely people not being comfortable in this conversation. So could you just help us better understand how would you define sexual brokenness and then sexual addiction? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a really important one because we all tend to think in in my opinion, when we hear a phrase like sexual addiction or even sexual brokenness, we tend to think in extremes and like, boy, it's that person who's in a daily hours long battle of looking at porn on the web or visiting strip clubs or, and, and there are definitely people that struggle to that level. Mm -hmm. But what it does, I think, especially in the church is it leaves it as an, an issue that some of those people have over there, a few select individuals. And I, I think it really misses the, the deeper understanding that we would get even from the word of God. And, and I always take people back to the beginning, the book of Genesis and say, you know, in, in Genesis one, when God defines male and female, which if, if we're honest, that's a very sexual orientation involving brain chemistry and body parts and reproductive functioning. Like it's, it's all yep. sexuality and God made us that way. And when he made us that way, he says, there's my image. In his image, God created them male and female. That's those two things together. So what that tells me is God made all of us to be sexual beings male or female, we are all born sexual beings. But then we get to Genesis three and sin enters the world and we find out we're also all born into sin. Hmm. So if you put that together, what it really says to me is we are all sexual beings who have had our sexuality impacted by sin and a sinful world, meaning we are all to some degree sexually broken mm -hmm. because our sexuality is not perfected the way God designed it to be. And so whether it's flawed ideas we've gotten from our culture, things done to us like sexual abuse because those numbers are probably far higher than are really being reported or things we've chosen to do we've all experienced sexual brokenness and i i think that's a conversation that really needs to change so that sexual brokenness isn't something a few of those people you know way over the edge are battling with but actually a conversation that we say oh we're we're all to some degree sexually broken and we all need to be walked through a discipleship path in our sexuality, just like we need to be in our relationships and our faith and how to pray, like that, that's an area of growth. And so I think if we can start there to say sexual brokenness is a common human condition that we need to bring to Christ and to community for redemption, that's helpful because then we can ask, well, what's addiction? Um, and I always tell the story that uh, I, I would have you know, used those same extremes when I talked about addiction. When I was starting this process, as I mentioned, I was very much stuck in denial and saying, well, I don't need this. And uh, But because my wife really thought I did need it, I said, okay, well, I'll go talk. There was this friend that was kind of a intermediate step before going to Pure Desire. I was like, okay, I'll go talk to Morris. And, and I went and met with this guy and I basically 
for an hour told him why I didn't need the TED program, as I called it, <laughs> you know, because I'm doing good and it's been a couple of months and I've got all these guardrails and I use covenant eyes and, you know, I just, mm -hmm. I had my list and he's like, okay. He said, Nick, let me ask you three questions. He said, number one, how long has this been a problem? And I'm like, well, since I was 13, 14 years old and at the time I was 30, so I was like 16, 17 years, it's been in my life. And he's mm -hmm. like, okay. Second question, how many times have you tried to stop? And I actually laughed because as I've said already, every time was going to be the last time I said, so I've, I've tried to stop hundreds, if not thousands of times. And he's like, okay. And is it causing you or people you love significant amounts of pain? And as I've also shared already, I felt like we were on the brink of separation or divorce. And, and I told him, I said, yeah, I think if I don't stop, I'm going to lose my marriage. And he said, okay, let's put that together. It's been a problem for a long time. You've tried to stop repeatedly without success, even though it's causing you and people you love significant amounts of pain. It's like, yeah, that's a pretty accurate description <laughs> of my life. <laughs> he said, Nick, that's the clinical definition of addiction. Yeah. And I remember when he said that, I, I sat back like he just sucker punched me because it felt so unfair. I mean, I was a pastor. I was preaching the word of God. I believed mm -hmm. it. Like I was, I didn't have some secret life that no one knew about where I had like, you know, affairs going on mm -hmm. and this huge stat, like, there was nothing like that. It was this every few months, dive back into it, feel horrible. I'm like, whoa, whoa, addict. Like, mm. but, but as I got over kind of my mental protest to that, I remember just feeling like, okay, this actually makes sense. And, and using the word addict didn't in any way release me of responsibility. It's, it's not like a disease designation, like, oh, I can't help it. I'm an addict. No, it's, what it explained was that the behavior had become something in my life that had gone beyond my ability to control it. Um, that for a time it maybe had been a compulsion, but at some point a compulsion can become an addiction that we realize without help, it will probably come back and I will go back there. Um, and so that was actually really helpful to get to that place of saying, I, I don't know how to heal myself. I need someone else to show me the way hmm. out of this. And so that I think is kind of a phrase for addiction. But even as you know, the director of Pure Desire, I tell people, I don't care what term you use. If you have a mental block towards addiction or a theological reason that Christians can't be addicts, like, okay, fine. Say you struggle. <laughs> Say yeah. you have a problem. You have a, as Celebrate Recovery says, a hurt, a habit, a hang up, whatever you want to call it. If you say there's something in my life that I wish wasn't there, I keep trying to deal with it and it keeps coming back, even though it's hurting me or people around me, then wouldn't we all want to deal with that no matter what we call it? So mm -hmm. that's that's kind of the way I encourage people to think about it. And and if that's you, whatever label you use, I don't mm -hmm. care. What I do care is that we don't stay in that place. Amen. Um, Amen. I think like when I really enjoy hearing you talk about this. I know we've had like lunches and stuff and you know, it's a weird thing to say, but I think just the way you articulate things is really, I know helped me in yeah. so many ways. And I almost wish I could just like always bottle up what you're saying and like put it in my mind, you know, or something. Um, well, I mean, it's hard because so many of us, this was not talked about right. growing up. And I mean, if it was talked about, it was just the don't do it. It's yeah. wrong. It's bad. Which as we know, when you tell a 13 year old boy why something is wrong and bad, yeah. it actually creates yeah. a reverse opposite effect of, well, now I want to check out why, why, yeah. right. and what, you know, the curiosity factor goes up. And if that's all the instruction we've been given, we don't really know how to talk about it because we weren't trained. And I go back to that word discipled, like no one discipled us how yeah. to think, act and behave yeah. in a biblical way sexually. We were just told all the things not to do, right. but that didn't necessarily help most of us because we didn't have the language no. to put towards what does health yeah. even look like. Which that's really good. You bring that up, but that's a question I have maybe for a little bit later about kind of how you cultivate that in your home. Um, but um, I, I've been curious a little bit because I, I, I really appreciate how you talk about we're all created as sexual beings and yet we all have this sexual brokenness and how kind of understanding that sort of, I don't know, universalizes the issue in a healthy way yeah. to where maybe more people will talk about it. Um, I'm curious to hear like, how do you, how can a conversation and something as serious as this, because it is serious, like it's, it creates a lot of shame in people's lives. And so I'm trying to think through, like, how do you see something as serious? Obviously, you, you saw how it was serious in your marriage, but how do you see it as serious and yet alleviate the shame of it? You know what I mean? To where you can actually talk about it and have a culture within a community where people are willing to talk about it. 
when there's so much shame there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you don't want to like minimize it. Like, hey, we all struggle. Yeah. You know, like we've all been in probably groups or settings like that where you just, everyone talks about how they all struggle with the same thing and then you, it becomes a lighter thing. Yeah. And yeah, so, it's a, yeah, it's how do you a think good through point because I, I think there's the two extremes of like, well, hey, we all struggle and we all just kind of nod, smile, like, well, it's, you you know, struggle it's the thorn together. in our flesh. Yeah. And, uh, but really it's, that's like nodding casually at sin and just saying we're going to put up with it because we can't really figure out how to stop. So right. let's just all act like it's okay. Or the other extreme of nobody ever talks about it because it's so big and it feels so messy. And somehow, and I think this is in some ways the enemy's plan, like somehow with sex and lust and desire, the enemy has made both of those things true in our minds simultaneously. Hmm. On the one hand, it's so big and scary. I can't really tell anybody about what's going on in my life. But on the other hand, I think, well, it's just what everybody struggles with. And I think both are, are kind of driven by that structure we create to deny, to rationalize, to minimize our behavior because we don't know what to do with it. Uh, so I think really the key comes down to, you know, you need two things. You need grace and competency. You need communities of grace where it is safe to talk about, I'm struggling, I have issues. And I, I don't just want to say in a general way, like, here's how often I'm going to my phone and looking at porn, or here's how far I've crossed the line with another person. Like, we need communities where it's safe enough and gracious enough to go to that level. Mm -hmm. uh, but if that's all we have, you do end up having a lot of people going, oh, yeah, me too, listen to what I've done. And, and we kind of commiserate in our sin, which maybe is better than silence. But we also need competency to do something with it. Um, yeah. I tell the story a lot that in, in Bible college, I had three friends that we started meeting together every week for prayer, and we were all headed to ministry and just praying for each other. And, and we got safe enough. There was grace that we knew we could start bringing this up. Um, so we started being honest about our issues with pornography. And you know, when that would happen, we'd confess it, which seemed like the right thing to do. But none of us knew any better. Like none of us had a workbook or a plan. Mm -hmm. And so for four years, being very, very honest, I mean, pretty much every time I struggled, that group of three friends knew grace wasn't enough. And I, that might sound weird to say, like I, I knew they loved me still, mm -hmm. but I was still struggling, which actually in some ways only increased the shame of what's wrong with me that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm being honest. I'm telling people, and I still go do it again. Like yes. I must be some kind of like wretched sinner that would keep going there. And so that's where I think the competency, the competency piece comes in to say, there needs to be a pathway of change. And had we had like this peer desire group book we have now for young adult, single men, I, I think it would have done wonders. Like, oh, here's a pathway. And so I think you need both. You need a plan and you need that gracious space. And I, I think most churches have probably erred on the gracious spaces when we get to know each other and trust each other we can be honest but without a real plan saying you know freedom's possible mm -hmm. we kind of just stay stuck so hmm. i think those two things are absolutely key and are why so much of what we do at pure desire revolves around the group environment of people being in that kind of safe group where both those things can happen mm -hmm. that's awesome that's really helpful. I really appreciate you speaking to that as well, because that's the intent of why we're wanting to have this conversation of the podcast is thinking of Gresham Bible Church specifically. How do we help disciple each other into what Jesus calls us into in all of life, including our sexuality, and to have gospel culture? So yes, it's safe. Yes, we're talking about it. And there's progress and there's healing. There's sanctification. Yeah. We're not just stuck, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. And I think for a long time too, I mean, people for centuries obviously have been saying this, but you know, Christianity is not for perfect people, you know, it's, um, you know, God, God, Jesus meets us right where we are, you know, um, but he doesn't leave us that way. Um, we talk about the Christian life as one of repentance, you know, so it's this constant sense of, yeah, I don't meet up to the, the standards even I have for my own self. I fall short, you know, the need for that grace, but then it's that constant need to to turn again, right? And to return yeah. to Christ or, so to me, am I being inaccurate when I say that kind of what you're describing a little bit is you had that place to be open and gracious or receive that kind of grace, but that pathway to freedom or whatever, how you called it, yeah. that's, that's kind of that pathway of repentance almost in a sense would is that how you would almost yeah. describe I mean, it in a you bigger both, category but yeah. I, sometimes it helps to think of it in a different context that if someone came you know let's say in one of our men's groups at gbc and acknowledge i've made a wreck of my finances and i'm bankrupt i mean that'd be pretty bold for them to say that because right. that's being really honest and the group could love them and pray for them and uh but then if we just said all right good luck bud 
Yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, well, it's clear this this guy maybe needs some understanding of finances and budgeting. And, you know, to, to really love that man would be to help walk alongside of him towards financial health. And the same thing to me is what comes to mind with sexual health. It's like, if someone acknowledges brokenness, then we're like, man, we're so proud of you for sharing. We love you. We pray for you. It's like, good luck. Well, I, I don't really have any tools to do it any differently. And so, yes, I think that humility and repentance is a starting point, but you know, to the true definition of repentance, going in a new direction, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, especially in our sexuality, we don't know what it looks like to turn and go in a different direction mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. no one's taught us. Yeah. All we know is, okay, I'm going to go now this time I'm going to try really hard not to do it, but, but we don't really have any more tools or direction than that. And so inevitably that person ends up back where they started needing to confess again. And mm-hmm. and so how do we break out of that confession cycle into actually forward progress? Right. That's good. Yeah. I'm hearing you say uh, offense and defense. So not just defense, but offense. How do we get to this? So to help, I'm picturing some at Gresham Bible Church might be hearing this and have been in the process of um, healing in regards to sexual brokenness. Some may be in a state of denial or still in the shadows and not knowing what to do, feeling stuck. And some are just kind of, maybe there's misconceptions around this. So I want to help in in that regards. So Nick, I know it's a huge conversation. So whatever you think would be helpful to share, but what are maybe some of those things in your own story or stories that you're familiar with that are underneath that sexual brokenness? want to help us have a holistic understanding of this. Like what kind of fuels that or what's kind of that root sometimes it's underneath yeah. sexual brokenness? Well, and I think this is where the conversation is helpful because it's not just about sexuality or pornography and, and lust getting out of control. It brings it back to that human place of saying we all do things we don't really wish we were doing that we're not proud of because of ways that we're learning to cope with pain or discomfort in our life. And so we've, we've learned ways to manage, we've learned ways to deal with it. And, and that's what I was really blind to that. Um, you know, I'd say looking at my family of origin, there were ways that I didn't feel seen. There were ways I didn't feel valued. Um, and so you bring that into, in my world, a very performance-oriented culture of being a pastor and I was a coach and I ran marathons. You know, everything in my life was about like trying to show I'm good enough. Mm. Uh, but if, if that's what's driving you or which was driving me, at the end of the day, nothing's ever going to be good enough to solve that voice because you haven't actually looked at where did that hurt or wound come from that says to me, I'm not good enough. So I try to preach well enough or build a good enough church or run a marathon fast enough. And when it doesn't work and you're still in the kind of lostness of why do I not feel good enough? What your brain figures out is, wow, when I look at pornography Mm. for a few seconds, I feel good enough. I feel wanted, desired, seen, heard. All these things that actually, as you hear me say them, you might be realizing are actually true God-given needs. God made us with that need to feel desired, to feel heard, to feel wanted. Um, but our, And so our brain looking for that latches on to that couple seconds or you know brief time of relief that goes, wow, that was everything. And that part of your brain that feels the, the rush of a climax uh, of the neurochemicals, it is not a moral part of your brain. And this is where I think brain research is so fascinating because I think it's actually unpacking God's design and Satan's plan to hijack it. Hmm. Uh, because in that part of your brain, brain, it's just operating off punishment reward. This feels good, this feels bad. And so what I hope people can see is we all have things like that that we go to that feel good, whether it's spending money, um, overeating late at night, binging on Netflix and you know realizing we should have been working on that paper for the last two days, but instead we've watched three whole series of, you know, <laughs> some, you know, stranger things or whatever, that we all run away from pain and discomfort rather than facing it. And whatever we've run to over time, our brain identifies as the, that's the, the source. So that's what I need. So the truth is if we've become addicted to ways of acting out sexually or to pornography, the reason we're addicted isn't because it's bad. It's actually because it's good in the sense that it's working. I don't mean good in a moral way. I just mean, it's like, it's doing something for us. Um, So there's these two levels that we need to unpack. What drives me to it? What's the unaddressed pain in my life? What are the wounds? What are the messages from my family of origin that maybe at a a subconscious level are kind of driving why I do life? And then how has something else become a false substitute for that? Where what I need is Christ and what I need is community and what I need is is acceptance, but I've learned to find those things somewhere else. Um, And until we kind of unpack both those things, 
we're, we're probably going to keep going back to it because we don't know what's driving us to it. Yeah. We, we'll, we'll just go to something else. And if, if we don't have tools to avoid it at the same time, we're just so stuck in the pattern that the brain won't change. So um, that was a long way to answer your question, but I think no, hopefully that, the listener can understand we've all got those issues from our past, from our family of origin, ways we've learned to deal with pain um, that for some of us have become part of when we run to acting out sexually. I just think mm. as Christians of anyone, we have the resources to see uh, sin, um, brokenness, addiction in holistic terms. So I want to help us have that framework, I think is helpful. How about just um, taking out some misconceptions first and putting them on the table so we can have a really healthy discussion? Um, what are in regards to men and women, there's a perception that, hey, porn's a men's problem. Could you help us understand maybe statistically or what you would say, um, do women struggle with porn too? Yeah. Yeah, we try to be clear at Pure Desire to say this is a people problem. Because yep. as, as I said, we're all sexual beings and all born into a fallen world. So we're yep. all encountering sexual brokenness. And when we give a message that like porn is a man's problem, we put double shame on women that struggle because they not only feel yes. the shame of the behavior, but the shame of what's wrong with me that I have a man's problem. Mm -hmm. um, we have found statistically speaking that in the church, anywhere between 60 to 70% of guys would say, I have some unresolved sexual struggle in my life. That could be every a couple of months, could be every day. Uh, but that also 25 to 30% of women would say the same thing. Now there's more stereotypes around men tend to be visual and we, that is a truth about our brain and how we're wired. And yet women can be visual too. But what I would say on the women's side is there's maybe a broader spectrum of the kind of struggle that could be everything from more of an active fantasy life to romance novels to um, chat rooms and everything in between. And, and men can do that too. So we want to be careful to say, if, if you're outside of the stereotype, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, There really are pathways and reasons. If we had time to sit down and talk, we could look at what took you down that pathway. Mm. It's kind of roots and fruits, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's where I go back to those root things of men and women have unresolved pain in their life, have false issues of how they find their identity. And that can lead them to something that makes them feel good. And it can happen for women just as easily as for men. So 25 to 30% of women is what I hear a lot. Uh, we also know, and this is coming from secular research, that the fastest growing demographic of pornography consumers is college-aged women. Now, that doesn't mean the biggest. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. teenage boys is still the biggest demographic, uh, but college-aged women's use is growing faster than any other demographic. And I think it's actually the pendulum swing of what's happening for college-age men. They're all looking. They're all, it's part of the culture. So women are going, well, what's so interesting? Why do yeah. they value that? Why would they look at that? And then they get curious and their brain can become hooked into it just the way a guy's brain can, that there's this weird push-pull of part of me is maybe revolted or doesn't like what I'm seeing. And yet another part of me wants to see more. And that is an, in, in itself the seed of acting out again, because in that kind of in between, the brain will end up going back again and again. So it's it's not a respecter, we say this all the time, of gender, of ages, of socioeconomical status. Like if you're a human being, you can struggle. And that's what's exciting to me about a pure desire group is when you start to unpack that, you can actually see why. Like mm -hmm. there's a pathway that led to that. And when you see where the pathway starts with the help of Christ, you have the tools then to change the direction of that pathway. Amen, hmm. amen, amen. How about individually and collectively? So thinking in terms of, um, you know, our own hearts and then maybe in the local church, what are some obstacles that you've seen to someone might be listening to this? Like, yeah, maybe this is my struggle or maybe someone I know, but what are some of those obstacles to progress? Like to having this be discussed in a discipleship issue? Yeah, I, I think there's just a lot of fear about like, this is not appropriate to talk about publicly. And so are we going to get up on stage and be sharing, you know, details like, and, and that fear is, I think, legit in terms of this is not a public conversation in a lot of ways. Like it needs mm -hmm. to be private. It needs to be personal. It needs to be in a committed group environment. Um, maybe bad examples where people are kind of forced into confession can be an obstacle. Um, uh 
or, or just again, that, that fear of a label that, well, if, if I come forward even privately to a pastor or, or someone and say, I, I need help, that fear of like, now I've got a label, I'm that guy or I'm that mm-hmm. gal who's, you know, the porn addict. And like I said, mm-hmm. I, I don't care what label you use, but I, I think we've maybe, and this was my story, I was so concerned about being known for that that I wouldn't let myself get healing for something I knew I needed help with. Mm. So I, I think, again, that's why it's so important we change the nature of the conversation from being you know, those few select people who have this issue to just acknowledging this is a people issue that all of us to some degree have issues around and those who are yep. pursuing help are to be supported and celebrated of, man, look what they're doing. Um, so it, it it's good if we realize, you know, I'm not going to have to stand up in front on Sunday morning and tell people all my deepest, darkest sins to get help. I can find a committed group of three or four others who might walk this journey with me and learn to be honest with them. Um, and that will change how I feel everywhere. So I think those are some of the misconceptions. Um, another one, unfortunately, on the other side is that it's a quick process of like, oh, I just need a couple of these. Nick talked about a couple of tools. <laughs> if I just get a couple of these tools, I'm set. And and the truth is when we're talking brain change and patterns that have been ingrained for many of us for like 15, 20, 30 years, brain change is a slow process. Um, we found you can change the behavior usually within 60 days, but lasting brain change is like a two to five year process. Mm-hmm. So that it, it, it's like having wet cement. You know, maybe you've got the cement poured and in 60 days, two months, you're like, you're going down a good road. But if, if you abandon that group or that process, that wet cement will find its way to kind of flow into a different mold versus the brain change is letting that change be set so that it stays that way and is really lasting freedom. So that that's another hurdle is it, it actually does take significant effort over time for the brain to change. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that because in our culture where we want techniques and strategies, right? What are the three life hacks to help me make progress here and to hear that it is a process? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I, I tell people a lot. I went forward at a number of altars and prayed. That was my prayer. <laughs> like, Jesus, heal me. Where, where's my miracle? And just set me free. And then I went through this process with Pure Desire where I was in groups and counseling for a year. And I think at the end of that year, there had been a miracle in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, like, is it any less miraculous that it took a year? than God doing it in an instant. Amen. But the truth is, if God had done it in an instant, I would have missed all the lessons that God wanted to teach me about how I was finding my identity in things other than Christ, how I had you know learned to just ignore pain in my life instead of facing it. Like I wouldn't have seen any of that. I'd have just been mm-hmm. free of the behavior. And so I think when we talk about healing, we wanna make sure that's what we're looking at is not just stopping a behavior. The behavior is like the tip of the iceberg. It's the part we can see. What we really need to address is all the unhealthy stuff below the surface that drives us into that unhealthy behavior. Mm, well said, well said. Right. How about for those who are struggling with sexual brokenness themselves, what encouragements would you give? And then also I wanna make sure that that question is welcoming. Maybe someone's hearing this and it's their spouse who's struggling with that sexual brokenness? Like how can they get help for the person who's struggling themselves or maybe someone they know, even their spouse, and they just feel stuck? Like what encouragements would you give? Yeah. Well, Nick's already said everybody struggles with sexual brokenness. Yeah, exactly. So, So, yeah. I I think that's what we need to hear is the message. (laughs) Yeah. You are not alone. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're dealing with, you're not alone. Whatever your spouse is dealing with, your marriage is dealing with, you are not alone. And I say that because I really believe that's the enemy strategy is to inflict everybody with the same disease and then somehow convince them that their unique brand of it makes them uniquely bad. Because I'm sure as people are listening, is this where I would have been? There's a part either where we're rationalizing it going, well, what I do is not that bad. And so we don't want to deal with it. Or another part of us that's saying, well, but you know this part of your story. And if, if they knew you did that, I mean, yeah, they've talked about porn, but you know, you've branched into some other stuff. And if, if they knew that, you're, you better never tell. And I would just say that's like a universal thing that we all think there's something in our story that disqualifies us from this working. And it's, it's not true. You're not alone. And the enemy's okay. trying to tell you you are. And so I think coming into that realization of saying others have this battle and I can find help. There's community available. I can take the next step. Um, and not to, as you were talking about earlier, Josh, not to just stay stuck in the, well, everybody deals with it. This is just the way it's going to be. Like we don't have to settle for a life where we're stuck in an, 
enslaving sin or, or a marriage just be believing like, well, my spouse can't ever get better. Like we can. And even if our spouse isn't ready to pursue their healing, we can start getting healthy ourselves because yes. if we get healthier in how we deal with it and respond, that can actually be the motivation God uses to get mm -hmm. our spouse moving in the right direction as well. Amen. Amen. Yeah. There's so, so many questions I have. Thanks. How about um, to maybe lean into that just a little bit more? What could be that first step for someone who's maybe even hearing this at Gresham Bible Church? And yeah, I want to change. I feel stuck. You know, you said to know that you're not alone. Any other first step type counsel you would give to someone? I just want people to feel encouraged by, by this. Yeah, I, I think finding safe people that you can begin getting real with mm -hmm. and, and not just saying, oh, you know, pray I'm struggling with lust. Like in a safe, appropriate environment, get a little more specific about what you're saying. How often is it happening? Uh, there's some truth that the devil's in the details. The the shame sits in those truths that you know to be true but haven't told others. And um, I, I do encourage the right person right up front is rarely if ever your spouse that's that's more of an emotional dump that you're you're uh, putting your emotions on them and you feel a lot better like oh they know and now your spouse is like oh no i have to deal with this i would start yes. with someone of the same gender that you trust and feel safe with and ultimately it's to find a group and i know we're having conversations at, at gbc about how to start a group and what would that look like mm -hmm. and and in the meantime there are groups available through puredesire.org that people could join an online group uh, there are other churches in town that you know east hill where dr ted Robert started has had groups for years and there's periodically openings to jump into something there but but that's really the place that that's starting your journey whether you are a betrayed spouse that just needs support for how do I live in this marriage or with this person or the struggling spouse and and your spouse has no idea what you're struggling with like for you to start in a group would be entirely appropriate and really is the beginning of the healing pathway to to begin implementing some of those tools into your own story yeah yeah that's mm. so good can I ask a question a little yeah, bit? Just because I mean, I, I want to go back to how you talked about in your upbringing, you know, great Christian home, but it, you know, this was never talked about. And um, I don't want to put words back in your mouth, but just yeah. the idea that, you know, if, if, if it was going to be talked about, there was probably this sense that there would be a lot of maybe punishment around it, a lot of shame and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess I'm, let's try to think about how to help people in the church who are parenting, especially, and you're raising up maybe boys, girls, obviously, anybody, and trying to think through, okay, how do I cultivate an environment where we can really talk through this in a way that's going to shed light in this darkness, but also, um, yeah, not just create a bunch of fear and shame around this, you know, because I think yeah. for most people, parents, you know, we're just thinking, hey, uh, what are the right filters, you know, we should have, you know, what are the, what's the best software and, and that stuff's obviously helpful. Uh, but there's a lot of fear, I think, around this. And I'm wondering how can that, how can we have our home lives cultivated in such a way where obviously these are pretty private conversations, but they have a sense of openness to them where you can make sure your child isn't going to want to just further hide and make yeah. sure they don't get caught even more, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's an area where I think uh, our Christian upbringing probably hasn't helped us as much as it could, because what's really the standard is kind of the idea that when your child reaches 12, 13, 14 years of age, you have the talk mm -hmm. and in the talk, somehow you're supposed to unload all this biblical wisdom that sets them straight and they're off, you know, on their way to go. And that was kind of what I got in a lot of people. And, and yet, you as we that? know- that doesn't really form us. <laughs> I didn't get that. Many yeah. people, yeah, yeah, many people get nothing, you know, or maybe you got the Pathway to Purity Weekend from Focus on the Family has that DVD set. And those are all good. I'm not speaking against yeah. that, but I'm just saying if, if we wait till 12, 13, 14, it's already way too late. Um, and it's, it's not really formative in terms of how a young person thinks. And so it's really learning to have this be a normalized conversation. Um, and I talked to parents a lot who are like, well, I'm, I'm worried about, they don't know those words or what if I introduce concepts and I say, listen, they're going to hear about it somewhere. Do you want them to hear about it on the school bus or at the kitchen table with you? Yep. The first time they see porn, do you want them to know what it is because you've already talked about it? Or do you want them to have no clue what's going on? Because it, they're going to see porn whether it's six or 16 or 20, like you can try to shelter them from the internet, but 
look around. Our world is the internet anymore. And so go on, Mish. people will <laughs> people will be exposed. Yeah. And the question is, will my kids' brains have a framework what to do with it when they see it? Because that's mm-hmm. what I've been encouraged as I work with our kids and not in any way saying our home is perfect or our family life is perfect, but but other parents that are like walking this road have been through pure desire yeah. are having these conversations at age appropriate levels at young ages. Like you see your kids, I believe don't want to, to veer into these things. And when they have a healthier framework, what to do with them and how to talk about it, mm-hmm. they will move towards health. But what I would say for parents, like the single greatest thing you can do to help your kids be healthy is to address your own sexual brokenness. Mm. If you can't tell without shame your own story, you're not going to be able to parent your kids well into health Amen. because you will parent them out of, well, don't do this. Mm-hmm. because it's bad. And when they want to know more, it's like, well, it's it's just wrong. But if you're not able to connect it to your own story, and I don't I don't mean to say you need to be able to go to your 6-year-old and tell them you're that would not be appropriate. Yeah. But if if you're able if you've dealt with your shame and brokenness and you can tell your story openly to appropriate people in your life that are friends, there's just something about the way your brain will handle parenting and stuff with kids that's different because it's not shameful for you anymore. And so you're going to be able to have these conversations with your kids without having it go through that grid of shame and just normal conversations of like, hey, how are, you know, when that scene came up on that show we watched, what were, what were your thoughts about it? And, mm. you know, our, I remember saying for my boys, like when they were five, six, seven, going to school, you know, in those young years, like, are there any things kids are talking about at school that you don't understand? Anyone's made a joke that, that you didn't know what they meant? Or are there any mm. words you've heard that we could talk about? And just when they would come up being like, oh, I'm so glad you asked me. And, and this is actually this body part. Mm-hmm. And um, so things like that, there's tons of tools I can give to parents. In fact, I'd, I'd say we'd love to do a, a parent training at, at GBC sometime, just how do we help parents navigate sexuality with their kids. There's great ideas there. But at the end of the day, if a parent hasn't dealt with their own stuff first, you're mm-hmm. not going to get very far. Because that whole, you know, do as I say, not as I do, especially in the area of sexuality, doesn't work. And so it, it's the, the one of the main motivators I say for moms and dads, like, even if you don't think your struggle is that bad, if you don't feel like you're able to be very open about it, do it for your kids mm-hmm. because it will transform your understanding and help you be a better parent. Uh, because then you can create a foundation for them that you never had. See, I think that's Amen. really, yeah. So I think it's really helpful. I mean, especially when you're talking about like, if you're just going to read the Bible with your kids, uh, which is probably a great thing for all of us to do. I mean, I won't get into it, but like my my son at youth group, you know, they were reading Genesis and <laughs> he was like, what's this mean to Eric? And Eric's like, go talk to your dad. You know, I think Eric's explained it really fast, but it was like a funny moment. But I mean, even when you read the Bible, you're going to come across things where your kids can be like, what is that? And no, so yep. I think even some of the stuff you're saying there is really practically helpful. And I think what I'm trying to think through a little bit is how do you not do the opposite where I... And maybe I'm wrong in thinking this, but like we can kind of share our own experiences or speak from that place of vulnerability. But how do we do that in a way that doesn't empower our kids to go, well, my parent did it and I'm curious to do it. And so therefore yeah. I I might do that or, or maybe I'm wrong in, in thinking through that concern or um, the opposite, you know, the kind of the way that I was raised, there was a lot of sense of, uh, hey, we don't do that. You shouldn't do that. And then, but as you spoke really early on in our um, recording here, Sometimes I can create a sense of well, what is that? You know, I want yeah. to seek that out. And so, yeah, I, um, you know, how I've do you told talk about something with a those, young kid that way? Along those lines, I've told a lot of parents: if if your heart is to bless your child, yeah, I don't think you can overshare. Okay, I, mean, I don't think you should be sitting a three year old down and trying to get totally. all particular. But but their brain is designed to trust you. Mm-hmm. And if you're giving them information they've not heard before, they're going to process it through a grid of mom and dad are trying to help me understand something mm-hmm. and. I mean, the the way the internet is working and kids on video game systems, they're accessing pornography accidentally at six and seven years old. And they're in our society talking about kids that have porn addictions at nine, 10, 11, and parents that have no idea. Now, I don't want to scare parents, but just bring up like, your kids are going to encounter these concepts. Let them encounter it from you. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, if it, and, and then go by their questions of if they're asking follow-up questions and they want to know more, like in appropriate way, answer the questions and, and engage with them. And if, if they don't seem to want to know more, it's like, great. I, I just remember trying to do with my kids, um, 
the attitude I think is so important to say, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. And, and when I could say to them, you know, this is something dad struggled with and mm -hmm. it really, really hurt mommy's feelings. And in mm -hmm. fact, it became something I had a hard time stopping and I never thought that would happen. Even, you know, telling my eight-year-old son that at the time, I think for his brain, it automatically connects like, oh, this is something dad, I can talk to dad about because mm -hmm. he's experienced it. Mm -hmm. He's told me it can hurt people and I should be careful. And he didn't just tell me, you know, not to, he told me why, because he found out it was hurtful. And I think that's so instructive to our mm. kids. They learn from us. Now, yeah, if our attitude's like, yeah, I struggled with it and you're probably going to struggle too. So, you know, whatever, no big mm. deal. Well, I don't think that's really a kind of environment anyone no. is planning to create in their home though. So. Yeah. I love it, this conversation because honestly, I think the lens we have to see this through is discipleship. It's Deuteronomy yeah. 6. Are we discipling our kids in all of life or not? If all of life is to glorify God and we're all sexual beings is a Genesis three problem. If we're not discipling our kids in this, we are failing. And so we have to like have language uh, and a view as the local church to disciple the next mm -hmm. generation into healthy, God glorifying sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, as the years go by, I feel more and more strongly about this in terms of uh, younger parents be encouraged to disciple your kids in age appropriate ways in regards mm -hmm. to sexuality as your kids get older. Like, like what's the downside of that? So mm -hmm. um, the whole offense defense thing, you build the foundation young and you create these frameworks and appetites for superior satisfaction of how your kids view sexuality and why porn is a poison and why wouldn't you wanna go there? So anyway, mm -hmm. I love the discussion. We need to think about it in multiple avenues, including how to equip us as parents for the next generation yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, Again, there's so much that could be said. I so appreciate your willingness to have Absolutely. this conversation, Nick, yeah. and help the church this way. How about, I, I think I would love to hear you speak to as we kind of wrap the conversation to a close. What aspects of the gospel have been foundational, life-giving, transformative for you in this? I would just think that would honor Jesus to hear you talk about that. Yeah, I um, I think the way I'd answer that question, I don't know that there's like a concept or principle like, oh my gosh, I'd never heard that before. But what I find in this process for myself um, and hearing from so many others, there really is for a lot of us and in, in, in my life, a disconnect between what we know to be true and what we feel to be true or really mm -hmm. deeply believe to be true. You know, one example being that, I mean, I know God loves me. I preached that. I've read it since I was a kid, sang the song like all of you did. Um, but when you're living in some shame of things that you keep doing and, and you can't stop doing, you can't help but feel like, how does God really feel about me in that place? And when I walked through my first group and had never been these guys as pastor, had never led them or done anything to perform well, all I'd done was share like my secret stuff and my sins and all my emotional you know, uh, baggage. And, and they respected me, valued me, loved me. It was like through them, the love of Christ went from being something I knew about to something I felt. Because it was like, if, if this Christian brother that knows really all my stuff tells me he loves me, then how much more does my heavenly father speak love over me? And so I, I think that was the most transformative. That's where what I tell people is the gospel became real. Mm. I feel like before this journey, it was a story I knew. It was a story I believed that I had faith in. But in terms of experientially, there were so many things blocking an experience of it because experientially I'd had a lot of negative experiences that said I didn't measure up, I wasn't good enough, I didn't have what it takes. And I, there is some truth there that those can block us from receiving in a very deep level the, the love of God and, and who he's really made us to be mm -hmm. because we've got this other voice saying, oh, that's not enough. You got to prove yourself. You got to earn it. You got to whatever. So I, I think that's what's meant the most is just at a deep level experiencing that when we say, you know, God, God loves you and wants you in the room. That's maybe the one concept I had of, I knew when I said the, the Jesus prayer and accepted it in my life, he had to let me into the room because he, John 3, <laughs> 16, he, he offered it to everybody. But I always felt like I was at that little kid table at the very end of the room, like, hmm. yeah, yeah, I know you're down there. But this concept that I'm, I'm seated at the right hand of the father with him and I'm, I'm his prized son at the table with the king. It was like, mm -hmm. oh, he actually wants me there. That, that was a concept that I think really was transformational. So, mm. and, and it had to come to 
get those old lies out of the way so that I could actually experience that and not just believe it in my mm -hmm. head. Mm -hmm. Amen. That's beautiful. Yeah. How about any other closing comments, encouragements? There's so much this conversation brings up. I feel like I'd be remiss if I just didn't ask that I'd as be, we move to well, a Well, I'd be curious to yeah. hear from you, Nick. You've been at GBC now for like attending regularly, like a year, year and a half. Um, what do you think would be a, an unnecessary next step for GBC to kind of grow in this area as you've just observed and um, who we are? I know, I know a lot of it's been through yeah. a pandemic, but yeah. you know. I mean, just, I think as we're establishing healthy small groups and men's and women's groups that that those are places where these stories can start but you know what i would suggest is for it to be a healing group in terms of someone really walking this road it will need to be groups that are focused around that and so i know we've had some of those conversations how to start that i mean ultimately i'd love to see an opportunity where we use something like sexual integrity 101 which is an eight-week video course that pure desire has that's designed for men and women and and to promote it as this is something for all of us to grow mm -hmm. to because like we can just if we can acknowledge we're all sexually broken to some degree we all grew up in environments that didn't really train us how to think about this so we all need to be discipled huh. and we could do it together um then it, it kind of reduces the shame level for people to go through it and actually lets us get far enough down that road in our thinking to realize, oh, I need this for me too. Hmm. Um, but it just things like that that we could do to reduce the shame around it where there could be some intentional discipleship opportunities that are presented as an all of us thing, not just, well, you know, the I think the danger of a podcast like this is the outcome is, so all of you who struggle with porn, here's the porn group. Yep. Because it immediately <clears throat> like, oh, that's a big hurdle for a lot of people. So if instead <clears throat> there can be opportunities like, this is just, you know, what I said, the, a parenting opportunity or uh, for everyone to come and learn about sexual health and, and how does that fit in a biblical worldview. I think opportunities like that. And then, as I mentioned at the beginning, the end goal for Pure Desire is helping establish that sustainable group environment. And I would love to see for GBC where there is just that knowledge that people have of if this is an area you struggle in, there's a group for you. And periodically has openings. It has new people that lead because those that get healthy become the leaders of the next group. And it just keeps that cycle going. So that just like we know, hey, the church can help you with marriage. The church can help you with yeah, figuring out your personal finances. And the church can help you with your sexuality. I think that would be my my long-term hope. Hmm. Not that's only good. for GBC, but really for any church. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good. How about how can we as a church family be praying for you and your ministry? Yeah. You know, uh, being a parent of three teenagers and one, <laughs> you know, who wants to be one with his siblings, that's life is busy and full. And I, I think just staying engaged as a dad, engaged as a husband, knowing how to use your time and energy well. That's probably my biggest prayer request right now. And, you know, for the ministry, I I think it is the challenge of this area is big and it's only getting bigger. And um, we are, we are, what's ironic to me, we're probably the largest ministry in this area mm -hmm. that I know of. Um, but we're like, one ship on a massive blue ocean of problems. And so the danger is to try to be all things to all people and help everybody all at once. And we just, we don't have the means or the resources. And so having wisdom to know what are the right opportunities for us? Um, what are the, the the doors that God is opening? And really just to stay, how to united, how to stay united as a team. Cause I think, you know, the easiest way Satan could undermine pure desire is just tear it apart from the inside with staff, not mm -hmm. trusting each other, not getting along. And, you know, we have a great staff, but we're all people and we have people yep. problems. And uh, I, I just think the magnitude of what we're trying to do culturally makes us a target. So just praying for God's protection and provision over the ministry yeah. is really, really needed. Okay. Really good. Yeah. I want to encourage people to, we didn't ask that question on accident to be leaning into that prayer and praying for you and your ministry. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, Will Gresham Bible Church, I hope this conversation has been helpful, enlightening, encouraging, convicting in a loving way. And I hope this brings up some questions or follow-up discussions. And if you want to reach out, you can do that by emailing me at mike at greshambible.org. So until next week, Gresham Bible Church, love you. Bye.